This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the 526th episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg. And for those of you tuning in, this episode is being recorded in front of an audience of film students at Chapman University, where I am a trusty professor. My guest today is a singer, songwriter, composer, multi-instrumentalist, band leader, and actor who, at just 37, has already accumulated 20 Grammy nominations, winning five, including in 2022 Album of the Year for his album, We Are. And he also has to his name an Academy Award, a Golden Globe Award, and a BAFTA Award, all for the score of the 2020 film Soul, as well as the American Jazz Museum's Lifetime Achievement Award and the Harry Chapin ASCAP Humanitarian Award. He has been described by Forbes as a generational artist who is only getting better. Wynton Marsalis, Jazz at Lincoln Center's Artistic and Managing Director, said of him, he is a modern virtuoso an elegant and electric performer with an unbelievably rich palette of techniques and styles rooted in New Orleans soul. He is engaging, entertaining, and accurate. And Time Magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. This year, he was nominated for six Grammys, including each of the big three, Album of the Year for World Music Radio, Record of the Year for Worship, and Song of the Year for Butterfly. And he is nominated for the Best Original Song Oscar for his tune, It Never Went Away, which is featured in Matthew Heineman's American Symphony, a Netflix documentary feature about the best of times and the worst of times in the life of this man and his wife, Suleika Jouad. Would you please join me in welcoming to the Hollywood Reporter's Awards Chatter Podcast and to Chapman University, Mr. John Batiste. Like uh, it sounds like water, 
like like flow. Welcome to Chapman. Thank you so much for making the time. You are a busy man. Yeah, I found this guitar in the dressing room. Yes. <laughs> it's amazing, man. Yeah. It's got a spirit. Every instrument has a spirit, you know. It says it's it told me uh it wanted to be played. Nice, nice. So I just started playing it. Oh yeah. You heard that sound like mm, no, no. <laughs> well, yeah, my bad. I know we're supposed to be talking. No, talk. no, no, this is great. It's great. Hold up. Let me it, take it off. It's great. Thank you. Oh, Let, man. <laughs> let's go back to the very beginning because music is sort of in the family genes, uh, blood, whatever. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about where you were born and what your parents did for a living? Because I think it all kind of fed into this, right? Yeah, my dad is a bassist, singer, musician, and my mother is not musical at all. She was, you know, way ahead of the curve. She was working for the um, the Environmental Protection Agency in the 80s. So she was, when I was in, my middle school years, in fact, I remember she went back to school to get a master's degree to learn even more about how to do that. Wow. Imagine having two kids and going to school, getting a master's. And she was so erudite. She read a lot. She always would give us books that, you know, at the time, frankly, I didn't want to read. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> it's true. But it was a big part of, you know, my dad exposing me to the music. Him, seven brothers, they had the family band, the senior family band, then 30 cousins, and I'm the youngest cousin at the time. And the tradition of black American families, the young cute, when they put them in the front, like Michael Jackson, <laughs> Jackson 5. Right. So that's when I started performing. <laughs> this was at how young and eight? You're out there pretty early. I was nine, and I did my first commercial thing, uh... And I was terrifying. So then I found instruments because I was an introvert. I didn't really want to be up there in the front. So then I got behind the instruments. And then we formed a junior band. And then the junior band, we had so many drummers that we had to figure out what instruments we would play that weren't drums. Right. So <laughs> I stopped playing the drums and went to the piano. That was That's my main instrument, the piano. I play so many instruments, but right. the piano is my main instrument. Now this is all happening... In and around New Orleans, right? This is where you're born and uh, nearby, mm -hmm. and you were performing in the French Quarter in your in before you're done with high school, like quite a bit, right? Yeah, I would play shows. Uh, a friend of mine, his name is Trombone Shorty. That's great. Trombone Shorty is his name that he was coined when he was three years old. He was about this tall, and the trombone was taller than he was. 
<laughs> I wasn't even playing music then. But by the time I started playing with Troy, he had been around the world, and he was a, a 10-year veteran at 14. <laughs> and we started a band together, and I started to really get my chops up like that and composing, and then I started writing my own music, leading my own bands, 15, 16 years old, and then 17, I moved to New York. I'm going to stop you there for a sec because there's even, I mean. Hey, not Jack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, yeah. you are you are a now known as somebody who will uh, go out into the streets and perform. We'll talk about where that came from. And basically, not a shy guy. But that, what, what, how, you didn't talk until you were 10? Man, I was so introverted. And I can't, you know, I, I'm I'm not sure exactly why. I just thought that um, I think part of it was probably having a big family. My mother on her side of the family, I said seven boys on my father's side. Imagine she's the eldest daughter of eight siblings. So how many cousins I have, aunts and uncles, grandparents, and I was the youngest for most of my my um, adolescence. And uh, till my younger cousins have come along about, you know, 10 years later. So I think I just was observing a lot, taking a lot in, just seeing the different things to do, to not do. Yeah. <laughs> then eventually you realize uh, you put, put pieces together. We all are creating who we are. And life is short, but life is long. So there's so much possibility, so much thing so much that you could take in, so much that you could do. I, I can't even imagine what I will be doing, God willing, in 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. But then I think back 10, 20 years to that time, yep. and I can't even really, I'm the same person, but there's so much experience that I've synthesized and made my own. So I think that early, those early years were just input. Yeah. <laughs> input and processing, baby. Well, if we if we want to talk about where inspiration can come from unexpected places, you, like a lot of kids, were into video games. How did video games <laughs> how did video yeah. games shape your interest in and for you know, interest in music, the variety of music, music from all around the world? Talk Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah. <laughs> Woo! Like, let me see. Hold on. Uh, like, you know. Uh... <laughs> That's great. And so it was basically just a totally organic thing, right? You're hanging out with your cousins in the summers and playing video games. And then what, what occurred to you? Like there's something, something about the music. You play everything you do is a diet. You know, you, you listening to stuff, you're watching stuff, you're reading stuff, you're eating, obviously. And all of that goes into your, your system, the apparatus, the human being apparatus, this thing that we got housing, whatever's in there. So I was playing the games and it just was giving me input. 
I didn't think about it like that, but we started to play those themes and in, in other video game themes. You know, Yoko Shimomura, who composed a lot of the Capcom theme songs. Nobu Matsu from Final Fantasy VII. I mean, it's very nerdy. I hope I'm not alienating 99% <laughs> of the audience. But in general, that was my... I was into that more than I was into music. So when I got around to being primarily focused on music, that was the stuff that I was referencing primarily. And of course, I was in New Orleans, so it was this hybrid of studying with these literal legends, you know, young legends in the making like Troy, Trombone Shorty, also these elder avant-garde jazz musicians who would be teaching me stuff that is, you know, not what you would think of when you think of New Orleans music. Like I had a teacher the late Edward Kidd Jordan, avant-garde jazz is basically when you play with no sheet music and no, everybody's improvising. And there were these four black men who decided in New Orleans in, in, in the 50s that they wanted to get into avant-garde music. Ellis Marcellus, Alvin Baptiste, Kidd Jordan, you know, these are my heroes, Roger Dickerson. These people, when I was coming around, you know, 13, 14 years old, they would say, you hear that, that creaky door? You hear that running water over there? Go get my saxophone. And they would bring the saxophone and they would play with the door. Or they would play with the water. Or they would go out and they would play on the railroad tracks with the sound of the train. So these were very experimental. It wasn't like traditional jazz. So imagine the palette of that video game music. And then whatever was on the radio, which, you know, at the time in New Orleans, especially, you know, I'm talking about year 2000, this is Cash Money, Juvenile, Lil Wayne. It's like the kind of stuff that like people listen to Jay-Z in New York. We didn't really listen to that. It was very much New Orleans hip hop, everything New Orleans, New Orleans, bounce music. Was it, who was it? Was it Lil Wayne who was like down the block from you? Lil Wayne, so <laughs> Wayne grew up in the 17th Ward in Holly Grove, my, my mother's family's house. The house that I spent many of the summers was five minutes away from Wayne's house. So you guys knew each other? We you had the same uh, uh, friends, friend groups, corner store, gym, <laughs> that railroad track I was talking about. Right. All of that, we grew up and we knew of each other, but you got to realize, you know, at this time, when I'm a kid, Wayne is already famous. So we didn't really know each other, but we knew of each other. And we wanted to collaborate for over a decade and then finally did it on this last album. It took that long. Wow. So 17, you get into Juilliard, which itself is a, a, a big deal. You move there, and I think pretty soon after you got there, back home, Hurricane Katrina happens um i think you've said that just being in new york anyway was a bit lonely at first now knowing that what's going on back home can you just take us into your mindset of those early years at juilliard on top of which you're getting grief for having with you at all times something here that we call a or that you call a melodica tell it so just that's a big question but Kind of, I guess, to begin with, before we even get into the melodica, 
why, like, what was, what was your acclimation to your new world like? I, I was just like, man, y'all stiff. <laughs> it's stiff, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Bruh. <laughs> oh, snap. It was great, though. It was cool. It was cool because it was, uh, I don't know, it, there's good and bad with everything. And, and you think when you go into a school like that, you think that people will see you for all that you see yourself to be. And that's not always the case in life. So that's really just a matter of people not seeing the vision that you have within. And that's a lesson, really. I learned that lesson in real time. Just Sometimes you'll know something and you have to believe it's true, even if the outside doesn't reflect it yet. So that was just my early experience. And that this instrument was a part of that. I was trying to develop my my own style. And I started playing this. It's a harmonica and a keyboard put together. So I would carry it around and we would play all around town in the subways and the cafeteria. I get free meals from the lunch ladies. <laughs> and it was amazing. But people, you know, they thought it was, it is a toy, but, you know, the imagination. Ah. Well, let's. Yeah, uh, baby. <laughs> let, me, let me quote a few things here about this. John, tell me if this is right. Oh, yeah. So, Wynton Marcellus from another great New Orleans music family. Yeah. He's over there at uh, Lincoln Center. Yeah. And he says, uh, or you've, you've said, quote, he's the biggest jazz star in the world, the guy. And he's saying, don't play that. He's yelling at you not to play that. You've got, um, apparently, you'll have to explain this one to me. They wanted you to get a psychological or psychiatric <laughs> exam because of that? Oh, because of many things. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, hey. this instrument, just because you're so associated with it, I want to tell the origin story. It goes back to your dad, right? Yes, yes, yes. He's um, obviously a part of the band, the family band. They would travel to different parts of the world on tour. And one time when he came back from Japan, he brought one of these back. It was a lime green angel. It said angel on it. I remember that. And it was something that I played. And I'd seen my uncle, my, my uncle David, he played it a few times and I'd seen people use it in the family, but I hadn't really seen it being used widely. So I started playing it. And then a few years later, I'm in New York and I, I just took it with me. You know, it was a way to kind of continue to develop my style. You just got to explore stuff. Curiosity is the answer. You know, just don't always do stuff for the end result. Just go after the thing that's pulling you that you're curious about make stuff because you feel like making it because you feel like doing it and then <laughs> might end up being something well so that's a perfect lead into the next question which is you're i guess just shortly after arriving in new york 17 18 years old people were aware of your music you were again starting to perform publicly in clubs and whatever and you get some major record labels that want to work with you most people would jump at that. You declined. What was that about? You know, oh, man. Okay, so I was thinking about this the other day. 
sometimes when I make music, it's hard for me to explain what it is. So then if you sit down and you you feel the energy that someone doesn't really understand what you're doing, you could tell right away. It's like an emotional antenna that you have. And, and you can tell it's like something don't feel right about this. I don't think that it's understood. What I'm laying down is not it's not being caught on the other side. And that's just an intuition. It, it wasn't like any business savvy so much more than it was the idea that uh, this doesn't feel like it makes sense. And I would also say my, my father, his experiences in the music business, they got burned a lot. And uh, knowing that, knowing my mother's just her ability to kind of sniff out BS. <laughs> and she just would always say, she you know, she's never... <laughs> participated directly in the music business, but she would always say, own your stuff, mm -hmm. own your stuff. So between all of that, it just kind of never landed right. Anytime I was on the other side of the table, which is not, it always felt like we want you to do this or we want you to do that or maybe you should do this album with this person or that person or this producer. That It just kind of was like, hmm, <laughs> I don't know. Well, and, <laughs> and so vibe. instead of doing that, what you did, I believe the right chronology is that you and some classmates at Juilliard form Stay Human, a band of your own that you're the leader of. And then you guys start doing something that was pretty unconventional. This is something you alluded to a little earlier, but can you just explain what are love riots and how did you guys begin doing those? Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, yeah. Oh, love right. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> like we'll just do that with like more people <laughs> you go go out of the normal setting and go out amongst the people right yeah yeah and then it would create this sort of feeling of uh community or in the small area and then i started to think about how we could make that bigger and how we could move it and we started doing these things where we would play on the street corners 
and we wouldn't ask for money if we go play in the subway we wouldn't ask for money it would just be us playing a full performance with a band and I'd be playing this and my my friends we'd be playing together and then people would gather around and then we would start moving while we're playing and then more people would gather and then sometimes we would go into places that weren't expecting it you know, going to like a coffee shop or a restaurant or like real up in places and they'd be like, ooh. And then like some people would be with it and they'll leave and they'll follow or something would happen where it would just gather more and more people. And then one time it got to the point where it felt like a riot because it was people chanting, one more song. Right. One more. I have this on video too. Yeah, yeah. And um, I got that moment on video on the iPhone this is like before we had real this before social media and all this stuff yeah. was really the what it is today so you thought 2011 and uh these moments would just become such a um viral they would have virality within the community yeah so people would talk about it and then people would say you got to come to this show so we started throwing these secret shows in like lofts and warehouses sometimes legally sometimes illegally <laughs> and then people would come out and then eventually we'd have people coming to these things that would just like you know it would be a basement in Harlem and Lenny Kravitz would be there and then like the Red Hot Chili Peppers would be sitting there next to like a dancer from Duke Ellington's Cotton Club who'd been in Harlem for the last 80 years and then they would have like a, a, a my friend JR who's a French artist who paced on buildings and favelas around the world award winning artists he would come out and he would bring artists and then you know, this is when I first met Amir. Questlove would come out, and he would start bringing people, and Zoe Kravitz would come out, and then she would bring people, and it would become this sort of um, thing where, like, it was viral before that was, like, a thing. Right. And then people started to hear about these shows we were doing that weren't ticketed. And then I started saying, we should do ticketed shows, but we should do them, and then we should do the Love Riot to the thing, like, the other thing. So we do shows in like small clubs in the Lower East Side or we do stuff. And this all the time I was an independent artist. I was making the albums myself, printing them. I remember I gave Lawrence Fishburne a CD. <laughs> and I was so embarrassed because I realized I had printed them myself and I had done something wrong and the CDs had no music on them. <laughs> they had the label, right. but no music. So he was listening to the record and it wasn't, I'm sure he was like, what's happening with the record? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I saw him again, like maybe eight years later. I've told him, Got him the like, right man, one. look, yeah. <laughs> when I was a kid, I gave you this record. Anyway, so that's what we did when I was in college. And then I graduated from Juilliard and then we went on a uh, what was going to be my first tour. And in the middle of that tour, we got called to do a um, a show called The Colbert Report. Let me stop you because you, so a year before that even, 2013, your first album, Social Music, comes out. And a lot of this is recordings of these love riots, right? Like yeah, yeah. from a subway, from wherever <laughs> where you guys are doing this. So it you're- It's cheaper that way. Right? <laughs> no studio necessary. Hey, baby, get And it. so you're building, you know, but it's still kind of a- uh, underground sensation at that point. Colbert, I don't know if, you, do, do you know how that um, came about? Because what we're talking about is July 29th, 2014, you get invited along with Stay Human to come to the Colbert Report. First, there's an interview with you, with you and Colbert, which was kind of interesting. You know, he's 
in his character, kind of needling you. It was, you know, I watched this yesterday just to be fresh and it was, it wasn't like, I, I, I didn't feel like, like it was love at first sight or anything, but then there's actual like fan video. Cause the official video, maybe it's a rights thing. It's not on there, but there's a fan video where you guys with Colbert essentially do a love riot where you go out of his studio, out into the streets with him dancing. And I think it was in that moment that he fell in love a little bit with, with you and your music. And obviously we know where that led. So, but just, um, what, how did that first call, how did that Colbert report, uh, visit come about and then how not long after did you hear again from him so in the middle of this tour it was not really a traditional tour it was like some jazz festivals here some clubs there and I would also do these things which I still do where I would go and I would speak about whether it's the history of music or I would go and talk about all these different ways that, you know, the social music idea, which is what I call my music, came about. And I was doing one of those at the, um, it was an ideas festival in Aspen, Colorado. And I think one of, uh, at that moment, one of the producers from the show had been in the audience. And um, at this time, also our album, Independent, as it was, was a number one album. This is my first number one album, and that was an amazing and, and, and incredible achievement. So there was like a little bit of a, of a buzz, even though we kind of were on this makeshift tour. And uh, so I think we were in Turkey, and I got the call. And we came back, and we did the show. And they asked me if I wanted to do the show. This is important, actually. They asked if I wanted to do the show. I hadn't heard about the Colbert Report. I kind of maybe in passing heard about it, but I never watched the episode. I wasn't familiar so much with the show. And they were saying all of this stuff like he's in character. And it was like uh, it was just so much that I couldn't really understand without having watched the show. Right. And I'm in Turkey and we're in the middle of like a tour. Right. <laughs> Then <laughs> it was just like a lot to process. And I was like, well, we'll do it if we can do a love riot on the air. Yeah. Which is the thing that now at this point, you know, f fast forward from those performances in the Lower East Side and the village and the lofts and the warehouses and the Harlem basements. And fast forward a year and a half later, we started doing these shows. We would go in a venue and we would take the audience from the venue for the encore and it would be like a thousand, two thousand people that would march outside and the love ride became the encore of our shows. So I said, if we could do that on television, we could take the studio audience from the Colbert Report outside and then parade into the middle of the street. And they were like, well, we've never done that before on television. And we don't know we would need to give you two segments and all these things. And I'm ignorant to what that means. And I'm also just like on a high horse because I want to be the modern Duke Ellington. Yeah, right. So I don't care about fame or what. So I'm just kind of like, well, let's, if we do that, then I'll do it. Right. And they say yes. Right. So that moment that you saw wouldn't have happened. Because um, typically, it's not yeah, like no. a typical performance moment. We took the audience for those zones. That we took the audience outside of the studio. It was an amazing moment. Colbert and I, we danced. We connected. And that was how we really became friends from that point. 
And so that again was July 2014, September 8th, 2015. He goes on the air with his, he's taken over from Letterman at the Late Show. And by that point, we're talking like, what is that? Like 14, 15 months later, you are now the band leader of a late night show. Now you, we've talked about the fact that you knew Questlove, you had enough of a profile at this point that you could reach out to some of the other band leaders of late night shows. How did Colbert pitch you on doing this? And that must've been a, a, something to think about because you now could be touring, you could be, and instead you're going to have 200 nights of the year when you have to be at the Ed Sullivan theater. Well, I liked him. And he didn't have to pitch me. He just really, he asked me if I wanted to do it. And it was not really like um, something that felt, it, it didn't feel like a choice. It felt inevitable. You ever have moments in your life where, you know, my cousin, who I haven't heard from in seven years, <laughs> is calling me. He's like, I saw you on the Colbert Report. You heard he taking over for Letterman. You should do that show. And then, you know, your 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 friend from 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 college is like man I seen y'all and the boys on the show that was nice you 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 heard that he doing the letter and then after about a week or two 30 40 people told me the same thing <laughs> from all walks of life my mom called me it was like did you see you, you Stephen is doing the <laughs> taking over for David Letterman <laughs> and then I was just like wow that's something. And everybody was trying to get me to call him to ask him to do the gig. And then he called me the day before I was finally convinced to call him. <laughs> and he said, man, everybody been telling me that you should be the band leader. And I agree. And we had somebody else that was going to do it, a famous musician who I won't name. But when I first met you, I realized that was the wrong choice. And then he dropped out. And I'm calling you the next call after he just dropped out. Do you want to do it? So it literally was like he was hearing the same. It felt like, oh, well, there's no pitch. It just feel like this is the next thing. <laughs> it's not what I was looking for. Right. And obviously he hadn't known about me either. But we met at the right time, and it was just one of those things. That's great. And this would mean uh, almost exactly a full seven years you were doing that. Now, what's incredible is how much other stuff you were doing at the same time often literally out of your dressing room at the Ed Sullivan Theater, which we can we can get into. But so we've talked about social music was the first album. That was 2013. 2018, you got you you put out Hollywood Africans. This is a next one, number two on the US jazz chart. This is while you're there. And then this brings us to a, a I think something that you not only did the score for while you're literally out of out of your dressing room, but there was it was a much greater involvement than that, and that is the Pixar movie Soul, which was the first Pixar movie to have a black protagonist. It's about a middle school teacher who has dreams of becoming a professional jazz musician, and it was really shaped in so many ways by you. Can you talk about how that came about and, and what that entailed? <laughs> wow. It's so funny to get the um, the stories of how things came about in perspective because so much of it is just, I'm just flowing. Like, uh, I don't even remember the first call for, for a soul, but I just remember we were sitting in the meeting 
and they all thought that I was crazy because <laughs> they were telling me about the film idea. This is before any frame had been rendered. Then they were just like, it's a movie about a jazz musician who's a middle school teacher, but then he dies. <laughs> and then the other half of the movie is about where souls come from. And it's for kids. <laughs> and they had thought that I would be taken aback by all of these themes coming together. And I was so hyped that they were like, he can't be genuine. <laughs> he, they, they, I remember, Pete told me this after a few years after, obviously it took Pete three Doctor, years, Pete yeah. Doc. Yeah. But he was like, we just couldn't understand how you were just so ready to jump in. Because we weren't even sure the movie would succeed. <laughs> It was one of those things, and it just felt like it was so aligned with everything that, like, <laughs> if I was first called in to be a, a consultant and to do some arrangements. And then after we started talking, I was just like, well, what if, what if we did this? Or what if in this section you end up composing? Because I started to just see what was happening and the, the, the way everything kind of fit. And that evolved into a much greater role, obviously. Well, let's just say, so co-director Kemp Powers said that the film script, everything included a lot of your ideas that you brought about jazz. Um, quote, when Joe, the protagonist, is speaking to his class and he tells a story about the first time he ever heard a jazz musician play, that's almost verbatim a story that John told us, close quote, um, even right down to the animation of this animated character's fingers playing the piano was based on, I guess you have quite uh, long fingers and uh, they were doing it from that, right? (laughs) So meanwhile, this expands to you, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross doing the score, which only won you guys, I think, an Oscar, a Golden Globe, a Grammy, a BAFTA, we could keep going, but we gotta we got only so much time. So uh, can you just tell us, I mean, in terms of the score and then going to Oscar night where this is the Oscar night, the year that it had to be in a train station because COVID. Mm-hmm. So like nobody was there except the nominees and their plus ones. But you went up there and gave a very interesting speech. Among other things, you thanked Miss Shirley, who was your piano teacher when you were a kid. I mean, it's this whole full circle moment kind of, right? And you did what I know you've said your kind of one of your missions in life is, which is to get jazz out to people who might not otherwise experience it. Well, that's when I was talking about those shows we did in New York and, you know, basements in Harlem. That was uh, a part of that was to go into the communities where jazz was born and to do things. You know, when I was 21, I started, I I was the director of the the National Jazz Museum in Harlem. So that's why we were in Harlem. Um, But I just love the idea of, of jazz, thinking of it as a superpower. People like, you know, Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday, Nina Simone, Louis Armstrong. These are superheroes. It's just impossible what they were able to do. So I thought that it could be a powerful thing to to find a way to 
because I hear the music. I really hear the music. I understand the music as much as as um it it allows me to, and and I embrace it as much as I'm blessed to to have an insight into it. And part of that insight is seeing how to take it and connect it to many contemporary sounds and rhythms and feels. So that's really an exciting thing to think about. That's why I was so excited in that meeting because Pixar is, you know, I've loved Pixar films forever. And I was thinking, wow, y'all really want to do that? Like, that's what I've been doing for a while. And it's interesting that y'all really want, like they were, you know, they were dropping names in the meeting. And I was like, how do you know about Roy Hargrove? (laughs) They're like, yeah, we went to the Vanguard to listen to him. As a matter of fact, now I remember, they were like, yes, we asked around New York, the jazz scene, and they said, your name kept coming up. That's how they started to call me. That's right. But uh, it was interesting, though. You're right. There's such an alignment. There's been an alignment with anything that I've really decided to go full force into doing, which I guess is maybe why I didn't sign a label as a kid or do, um, you know, I think that was fate being kind to me. You don't let them be too successful too early. And let's just note that when you won the Oscar for that, only the third black composer to win the best original song Oscar, there had been Herbie Hancock 24 years later uh, or earlier and Prince two years before that. So not, not bad company. It, uh, certainly probably should have been uh, bigger, but that was that's the, the lineage that we're talking about. Now, after the Oscar was, so that's your, you know, crowning achievement to that point in film. Then you have your crowning achievement to that point in music, which is your next album, We Are, which is this 2021 comes out. And I think, again, comes back to the stuff you're talking about back at Juilliard and even before where it's like essentially blowing up the idea that genres should exist, right? I mean, even your first album, Social Music, it's sort of a precursor for We Are, right? Definitely. I'm I'm working on the same three, two or three ideas, I feel like, for the last however long I've been creating. I feel like that's how it is with, with most of the, the artists who I admire the most. It's like refinement on the same two or three ideas. You know, if you listen to a Beethoven symphony, it's, it's um, he's, the, the ideas are very basic and fundamental. It's rhythmic ingenuity, theme and development. How do you take something very small and make it as big as the world? You know, it's like ideas. So I think we are is how do you take the the idea of specificity in terms of region and heritage and culture and make it universal by being hyper-specific? So... My high school marching band is on that album. Yeah. My nephew is on that album. My grandfather's on that album. My dad. <laughs> like the the people on the record are, you know, it's something that I, I, I'm continually working on. That's a very, very 
interesting thing because I think we're all more, obviously we're more alike than we are different, but even more so than that, the depth that's within all of us transcends the surface differences. So the deeper we go in, within, the more we actually penetrate to the core humanism that we share. Now, we it's called We Are, which is answering a question that you were trying to address, right? Oh, yeah. Well, that's the times we're in. We are in some times. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, the generation, I mean, y'all's generation is amazing. This uh, To have gone through the pandemic, the political strife and the division, the isms, the the visions of uh, identity and how it has been challenged and shifting all at once. It's very much, you know, I applaud y'all. But I like to, to make music that brings hope. So ultimately, hope is not just like hunky-dory, have fun, everybody's, you know, you got to kind of deal with some of the heavier themes. Yeah. So I was very surprised, actually, that the the album was that successful. I'm always surprised by that because I feel like everything I'm doing is so, like, (laughs) 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 so, you know, well, great, (laughs) grateful, you know. Well, when we talk about successful, let's, this will put it into some context, this album got 11 Grammy nominations. Only two people have ever gotten more Grammy nominations in a single day than you got with that. And those are Michael Jackson, who got 12 in 1983, and Babyface, who got 12 in 1996. So one more nomination for two people, and that's it in the history of the Grammys, which goes back, I think, to the 50. I think, anyway, it's many, many decades. Um and you got them in categories spanning more genres, I think, than anybody ever. We had stuff in there with American Roots, R&B, jazz, score, video, classical, um, which I know is kind of, again, important to you because that's what you're doing. You're, it's not going to be easy. Like, yep, I'll give you an example. Yesterday, I went to Amoeba Records because I wanted to get some vinyls of your albums. And... They didn't know where to tell me to go. There's soul, there's jazz, there's rock, there's all over the place. So I spent a long time wandering around trying to find the different ones I was looking for. But that is your kind of MO in a way. Um, But Grammy Night, you perform Freedom from that album, which blew everybody away. And you won five Grammys, the most of any artist that night, including Album of the Year, which was presented by your, I guess you could say, mentor, Lenny Kravitz, who's also now using Trombone Shorty on his song from Rustin. It all kind of comes full circle. But so I want to ask you, I guess, about let's let's talk about that's got to be about as big a night as somebody can have in in a 
in a career. What did that, what was that night like for you where on the one hand you're winning all this stuff and people are going nuts and this introduced you to a whole lot more people than knew you before. On the other hand, I just want to put out there as a, as a fact. So the Grammy started in 57. You were the only the 11th black artist to win album of the year, which is insane. So here's who preceded you just to show the, the company, which again, should have been larger, but Stevie Wonder, Michael Jackson, Lionel Richie, Quincy Jones, Natalie Cole, Whitney Houston, Lauren Hill, Outkast, Ray Charles, Herbie Hancock, and then 14 years after Herbie Hancock, John Batiste. So all of that, yeah, just um, just the, 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 the kind of good, the not so good, all of it. Take me into that, that night for you. Yeah, I, I I was filled with uh with joy for the reason that it was um so deep to see, even still to this day, you know, my grandfather, ninety-three, he's on my mother's side, so not the musical side of the family, but you know, he was part of the first wave to integrate the Navy. Seventeen years old in the Navy fought in the Korean War to go to his house in the 17th War and you know when you win for album of the year everybody who played a role in the album gets a Grammy so he has a Grammy sitting on his uh, mantle that's great and he was there that night when when uh when it was announced he was there my nephew was there who's on the album who you know he got his, he's he's got a Grammy at six years old that's amazing. My my high school marching band, the St. Aug Marching 100. So it's a um, predominantly black, all-male school, K through 12. The marching band is like a, uh, a institution in the community. There's a Grammy on the band, in the, on the band room shelf. We went there the other week. You know, trombone shorty. We grew up playing together, playing in clubs, Maple Leaf Bar. You know, that was his first Grammy. I'm just thinking about all of the people who, <laughs> you know, it was like I won, but like the people who never would be considered for like, <laughs> it's just very deep. It's, I'm still processing all of what that was. I remember I looked back, Ryan Lent, my executive producer on the album, he, he was sitting back there and he kind of knew before they announced the album of the year. He was like, you going up? <laughs> and I was like, what? Okay. And he put his phone down. We he went wasn't up. alone, right? Who were you sitting next to? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, actually, the filmmaker for American Symphony. Matt Heineman. Matt Heineman. Yeah. He snuck in. <laughs> so he was actually sitting illegally <laughs> next to me. I hope nobody from the Grammys yeah. is here. <laughs> Statue he of limitations expired. Yeah. He was filming on his iPhone. Right. And he had John Legend's kid on his lap <laughs> to get the shot. Right. But that's not even who I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Weren't you near Billy Eilish and Phineas? Oh yeah. Well yeah, that what? was <laughs> we we had been hanging the whole night. Right. Just kind of <laughs> It was a good vibe that night. It was one of the best Grammys I've been to. It just felt like 
I don't know because it was it was in Vegas. Yeah. And a lot of stuff was in flux up into the right. ceremony. It just felt like, wow, we made it. We're together. Celebrate each other. Celebrate art. Let's celebrate. It was it didn't feel like um any way weird or stiff or competitive in, in the way that sometimes award shows can, you know, it's a blessing to be there, but it also can kind of get a little bit stuffy. Yeah. It was amazing. It was like a good party. I heard. I think they said we're we're rooting for you, right? Yeah, yeah. They or turned. <laughs> I love. I love that. Just the the camaraderie. I I really admire when I look back in the history books and you see artists, and you realize, oh, I didn't realize that these people were friends. Or right, these people. <laughs> You know, we're rooting for each other. You think in history, but that's what it is. And now just to have the privilege to be in our time and, you know, us to be in this sort of collective in, in the memory of history, to be a part of each other's art and to root for each other. And then, you know, who knows, collaborations or not. It's just a, a collaboration in time. Yeah, yeah. Well, after that Grammys night, which was on the heels of the Oscars night, it seems like you felt that a chapter had was closing and it was time to begin another one. So that was sort of the the end of the of the late show chapter for you. Not for Stay Human continues. Yes, uh, your yes. band, but for you, what was the idea there? It's like I want to have a little bit more flexibility. It was such a a journey. You got you know at the time that I started. I had only been out of college for a couple of years and then I was on television five nights a week, 202 shows a year. It was just so much at once. Um, also just in terms of lifestyle and family and money and all these things that just were f from night to day, you know, from, you know, playing in the subway and playing music and doing things that were, you know, for fun and for the creative kind of bohemian life and living in, in college and working on craft and all that to now just having so much responsibility. Um, I think at a certain point there was whiplash. I had to figure out, you know, once we got to the pandemic and everything shut down, I realized, you know, I hadn't really processed the five years prior to that. And so much had happened, so much success, so many different things that I was still trying to uh, understand. And once we came out of the pandemic, I felt that um, there was so much that I processed from those years and in that moment of the world shutting down that I knew that I was about to reach a, a, another transition point. It was an inflection point in my life. And then that just so happened to be also, within the same realization that I was having internally, the external started to reflect that with, you know, we are having the success that it had with 11 nominations, as we talked about. But also in that same week, I found out that my wife had been diagnosed with leukemia. Uh -huh. So we didn't know if she was going to make it. We didn't know if she was going to live. And a lot of people didn't know that behind the scenes I was dealing with that while doing the show, while finishing the score for Soul, while the album was having all of the success you know, all of these things were happening one after the other after the other. And then the world shut down and then Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all this stuff was like hitting. And I was like, I need to just 
simplify. Mm-hmm. So it just got to a point where I, I had to um, to find a way back to myself. Right. And that was really a part of what, you know, the film American Symphony, sure, was a documentation of the process of that, but the symphony itself was a way to, for me to kind of synthesize all of it and write my first symphony. And that's, for me, creativity as an act of survival. So the symphony and American Symphony, the film, I'm going to close with in a moment, but just so that I can, we can focus on that fully, let's note that also in 2023, the year of American Symphony of the Documentary is your most recent album, World Music Radio, which I imagine there's some pressure to follow a an album that gets 11 Grammy nominations and five Grammys. So here we are. You've said it started with the world music, the idea, you know, bringing um, influences from all around the world. But the radio part got added on and in the form of a essentially a DJ connecting the dots between the songs on the album. Can you just talk about how we got there? Because that was quite a breakthrough and, you know, how we end up with Billy Bob Bo Bob, as in 4B, which you can, I'll leave it to you to explain. <laughs> I'm crazy, man. <laughs> I don't know, man. This stuff be coming into my mind. I just go with it. <laughs> I just like the idea because it was, uh, you know, the pressure can get you or you can just make what you want to make, you know, you got to sometimes zooming out is the way I feel like we also were trying to make something that stood up to the expectation, but not become a prisoner to it. So it gave me opportunity to, to attack an idea that I've also been working on for quite some time, which is to make limitless experimental music that, has a, a compositional integrity and is accessible to many people. So oftentimes if you're making something that's limitless or experimental or trying to express something that blends the colors in a way that is obtuse or not traditional, it it comes off as such. It comes off as esoteric or it comes off as not being something that you can approach and I think one of the ways that you can deal with that that challenge is through narrative, through storytelling. We created with the creative agency that we brought on for the album, which is just a concept that um, I was I'm so pleased with. Wolfgang is a creative agency that we brought on to build a storyboard as if we were building a film and a script for a film that became the album. And Billy Bob Bobob is a DJ character that came to me in one night after nine months of working on the album. You know, what if an alien came to Earth and listened to music for the first time and started to broadcast all of the elements, curate all of the elements live, past, present, and future through time travel, through future technology, form of Afrofuturism, to blend all these things together to create a broadcast signal, best of, what would that be? And that would be World Music Radio. 
So that's how I ended up with an album where it was like you got a main character that guides you through the album and you got Kenny G and Lana Del Rey and Lil Wayne on the same record. Right. And all of the things that happened were just, it naturally came like you're cast in a movie. Okay, this is the story. I see it. I feel it. It was in my bones. I went through the world. We made the story. Now, who is it that we can bring into this scene that's going to express what needs to happen for the narrative to move to the next beat? And that was a great, great act of faith because, you know, nine months into it, before that came to me, I didn't really know how we were going to pull it all together. It was at a point where I thought, I hear it sonically, it works musically, I like it, but I'm it's eighty percent, not a hundred. How do I get it across the line? And meanwhile, I think people are pretty uh excited about it because we'll note that on February fourth, just a few days from now, you will be at the Grammys again with six more nominations, including the big three album of the year, record of the year, and song of the year, butterfly from that album. Butterfly in the air You can fly anywhere A sight beyond compare A sacred song and a sacred tone There's a butterfly flying Not many people have ever been up for the big three in the same year. So that's cool. Now, we're going to close with American Symphony, both the symphony and the documentary. Oh, the doc. Matt Heineman, the director, you knew before this project because you scored his last documentary, The First Wave, which was about COVID, early days of COVID in a New York hospital. How does that lead to an idea of making a documentary about you, which obviously in the course of making it, because of events beyond anyone's control, changed quite a bit from the original idea. I had a a vision of making a a process film that, you know, I would watch on PBS when I was a kid, like boring process documentaries where you would just see like, and this is how the paint dries. (laughs) And then it is another coat. <laughs> and it's like one of those moments of uh, of really after leaving the show and, and, and doing all the things that I was doing, World Music Radio is an expression of that. American Symphony is an expression of the same idea of just limitless creativity and doing what you, you feel and, and letting that instinct guide it and refining the ideas that you've always worked on. And I thought, even if I was the only one to watch it, it would be amazing to capture the process, which I had never done and never been in a position to do. The process specifically of making a symphony that spoke to the present day and particularly the the present day black experience? Yes, and, and in general, the experience of what what is a symphony if it had been created in America in the year 2023 what would that sound like what would it look like who would be on stage what would the the 
levels of excellence all being the same and the values and and implications of what it means to approach writing a symphonic piece of work remain, but the context and narrative material is shifted to include things that maybe have not um, been a part of it or frankly have been gatekept out of it. So that's a real vision to capture. And then, you know, my wife is amazing and she's a star and I love her so much. And it's so incredible what she's been able to do storytelling and her, I mean, just award-winning career. And in this moment, she also was in one of the hardest times of her life and our life together, which is, you know, I alluded to when I said she has the leukemia diagnosis in the process of us doing this filming. Can I just know for people that you guys met at summer camp when you're one of you is 12, one of you is 14. You you yeah. then 10 years, I think, before the events in the documentary, you were not, I don't think, yet together. And yet she wrote a piece in The New York Times where she had just for, I think, the first time been diagnosed with leukemia. She's in the hospital and talking about how kind of lonely and isolating and depressing it is. And then her old buddy, John, and brings in his band, comes in and performs in the hospital and got everybody, it changed the whole vibe there, which is so on brand. Uh, and then obviously in those 10 years, you guys, it, it evolved into a, a marriage. But on that, the, the craziest thing, which I know took your, this collaboration with Matt Heinemann into a very different direction was the same morning you find out you've got 11 Grammy nominations, she finds out that the leukemia is back. And so that, I guess the real question here is, you know, you and she obviously would have been very well within your rights to say, you know what, Matt, we got to stop. Like, this is, this has gotten difficult. And I'm sure he would have been a hundred percent understanding. But what made you guys say, let's let's keep going? So she didn't want to keep going, and I was very much protective of her up front. But then there was a greater why that emerged, and that came from her primarily, which is, you know, as an illness narrative template, you oftentimes apply the hero's journey to it, which is... I came on the other side. I'm a survivor. Uh, I'm better than ever. I'm living life. And really, reemergence is sometimes more difficult than the actual process of healing and, and the treatment process. Because then you're kind of out on your own and there's no manual. And then there's also the side of the narrative where you're in the throes of it and you don't know if you're going to make it on the other side. And the real raw narrative of that being captured is something that she felt on both sides, which she's told the story of reemergence, but not this story. And she's so committed in terms of her artistry and storytelling that she wanted to share that if it would not be flattened in the documentary in the context of it being just a, a, a tragic counterpoint to my success. So these were real conversations we had with the director. Don't flatten me, she would say. I would also say, 
well, if we're going to do this, how are you going to do it? She can't get sicker. She can't be at risk. Also, in the context of this film, how do you see us braiding together the narrative of a symphony of this now tornado of, you know, the road to the Grammys, which is a thing, this journey, which is kind of flipping this hero's journey of illness and recovery on his head because we don't know the outcome. How does this fit into one story? And I, I kid you not, we didn't have any partners. We didn't have any, we, we funded everything going from the beginning to the end without partners. So we didn't know if any of this was even going to make it, let alone that it would turn into a movie on Netflix and be partnered with the Obamas and it'd be all around the world like the way it is. You got to imagine all of this committed to something which we didn't know would see the light of day, which was amazing because I think it made us more vulnerable and it made us have a sense of uh, of very candid and, and, and trusting exchanges with, with Matt, the director, because he didn't have to figure out how to process all of that. <laughs> and he shot 1,500 hours of footage, I think, partially because what are we making? We don't know. We just have to capture everything. So 1,500 hours of footage to make, you know, a documentary that's roughly 90 minutes is, uh, is like OD. <laughs> uh, that's what happened. I, I, I really think we kind of keyed into, we found something. Even though we didn't know what it was, we uh, the three of us, it was like a dance. It's beautiful. And there are moments, this is not, giving it away because this audience is going to see it. But, I mean, we can talk about it without it necessarily. I mean, there's a hiccup during the symphony at Carnegie Hall and how you handle it. There's scenes in the with, with your wife's doctor where that's as personal as it can get. There's scenes with you speaking to your therapist under your pillow. Like, it, you guys really put it out there, and it is very moving and powerful. And the cherry on the cake, which we will close with here, is the fact that there is a beautiful song that comes in late. Uh, can you tell us about how, I think, almost synonymous with what you do? I mean, there was a, out of one of the darkest periods, which is chronicled in this film, comes something musically beautiful. And that is the song that you're now nominated for an Oscar for, it never went away. It never went away. Oh, every time I see your face, oh, the feeling's just the same. Oh, it's never going away. How do you get something light out of the darkness? Oh, man. Wow. So one of the things that I did when Sulaika was in the hospital was I would write lullabies for the hospital room. And there would be themes of lullabies that I would record on the soft synthesizer on the computer. And I would plug to the speakers and they would fill the room with these themes of, of lullabies. And that was something that was just a part of this 
era, part of this time, some of these themes uh, ended up being, you hear me playing with those in the documentary, like the, the moment where, you know, I'm playing in the doc, there's a solo piano concert and some of that came out in that moment. Um, but most of it wasn't really meant to, to become a song. They were just meant to bring a, an atmosphere in the hospital room, a healing kind of energy. And then that changed when, you know, the day before the premiere at Telluride Film Festival, Matt, who has not really kept us up to date on edits of the film, uh, shown us cut to the film. We just have these conversations and then we kind of just trust that he's going to go and process it. And the first cut of the film that I'd seen, which was months prior to this, was like four hours long. And he sends a clip of the ending that's different to any of the endings I've seen on the two or three cuts of the film I've seen over the course of nine months of filming or so, however long we film. He sends the last scene. He says, this is what I want to end the movie with. Tell me what you think, honestly. And, you know, it's a Matt Heineman film. I'm not really like, but we also have been in this spirit of having very, very honest conversation about how we feel and what we want to um, to say, particularly with the music. And I heard the sound and I didn't think the music matched the scene. And I thought the music from the uh one of the things that he had shown me months before was better. And I didn't have anything to, to give to him because I wasn't really composing music for this film. It was music that was happening that he captured. And we could sometimes go back and repurpose some of it for the score, compose things within that to make it bridge to score. So we have this seamless momentum to the filming. But we didn't have any discussion about doing a song until that moment. And I said, you know, I think the only thing that would make this work honestly is if you had a song, but I don't have anything for you. And I don't want to make something because it would feel so separated from every other sound and every other theme that's in the film. But then it hit me, if I go to those lullabies, that's an authentic musical outgrowth of this time. And if I make one of these themes become something that, because the last part of the film before this scene is the symphony. So it comes out of the symphony and bridges into the song, blending compositional music and song music. And that's a, <laughs> that's a, like, not apples and oranges, but it's not quite. So just finding that language and all of that really came about after the film had um, had been almost finished. He's still cutting the film up into the premiere. So it was a last-minute addition that felt like it was the perfect culmination to the film. And it said everything it needed to say, both musically, sonically, and also lyrically. And it just was something that I didn't know I had in me. And I didn't know the film needed but I think that inevitability is why it's, it's such a special moment in the process because had we not been jousting with him, <laughs> had he not been doing his process, which is honestly invasive at moments, pushing access, had it not reached that point, we wouldn't have never, we would never had that, the wherewithal to be able to say no. And then that leads to yes. 
So that's where the music came from. And I'm so glad that it um, is recognized. I'm very disappointed the film wasn't recognized. But, you know, it, it's, it, it's not about that. I think the people who have seen these, these clips of our life, I'm, I'm so grateful that it's given people hope and it's given people a sense of not being alone. Oh, it's a beautiful film, beautiful song. And um, just before we turn this over for a final few questions from students, I want to really thank you for uh, coming and doing this. And we are really grateful for you being so open about all of this. I know a lot of it is, you know, it's been an uh, emotional time that you've shared with everybody and they'll see it even more in the film. But we're going to close with just a few student questions. If you put your hand up. Hi, my name is Evelyn. Hello. Hello. Um, I'm just wondering, what's your favorite song right now? <laughs> do you still make a playlist at the beginning of every year? I know yeah. you did. did you, so you've yeah. done that for this year? Oh, my goodness. I have to. I'm always making playlists. Favorite song right now. Wow. Wow. That's a hard one. I like uh, Marvin Gaye's version of the shadow of your smile. Okay, next question. Hi, it's uh, really amazing to get to talk to you. I grew up watching Colbert with my mom and you always added so much personality and talent to the show. Um, I guess my question is um, uh, coming from both the musical scene in New Orleans, uh, speaking about you, of course, um, both from that and um, playing music in New York for years, what would you say are the cultural differences between the musical scenes in each uh, city? Mm, yeah, yeah. There's so many differences, and yet both are this amalgamation of cultures coming together. It's like a, a, a gumbo. So, you know, I think New Orleans feels very much akin to tribes, Families, musical families are like tribes and there's a musical language, there's music customs, like, you know, there's songs and there's ways that people play and there's ways that you can sit in on a show. Like you can come into a club or a, a, a juke joint and you can be underage, but you can go in and you can play with the band and that's okay. Like everything else is not okay. No drinking, no smoking, everything, <laughs> but there's like a system. And I think that in that way, it feels very provincial. It feels like a, a village almost. Whereas New York is a gateway to the whole rest of the world. And there's different pockets with different cultures and different music scenes. You can go over here and you can play with the Cuban musicians. You can go over here and you can play with the reggae musicians. And you can go over down downtown and that's where like certain jazz musicians play. And then you go uptown and that's where other jazz musicians. So it's like um, a little different in that way. I'm Ben. I had a question about um, your score for Soul and like what kind of conversations you had with Reznor and Ross and like... How do you come up with the sound for like what the great beyond is? Man. Woof. Ren Ren Kleiss is a a incredible engineer and sonic designer who creates sounds for worlds and, and different aspects of the score. So between Ren Trent Atticus, myself, and Pete Doctor, who is the director, also is a musician. 
we had conversations about all of the different aspects of sound, not just score, but sound and how it could blend together and what points the great beyond would come into the natural world and what points they would overlap or, you know, how to kind of relay that whole situation. So it was really just a question of thinking about what's the focus in any moment and then what would the sound be and then let's go on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. <laughs> like the great beyond might sound ominous even or just daunting. And then let's make it goofy. And then like see how that feels. And then like, okay, let's dial it back some and then look at the picture and see how that feels. Oh, well, maybe it sounds goofy, but then you put these chords underneath it or this synth underneath it it changes the way that that's perceived and it's ironic. So there's like, it was a lot of experimenting like that, but mainly conversation. Hey there, uh, my name is Max Hauer. I think all your music is really awesome and your personality too is just so sick. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I was just wondering, you know, you have so many inputs that like are coming into your mind, like from the Grammys, the awards, like, everything is just kind of swirling around you in the, like this total like mess of like different ideas and creative inputs. How at the end of the day are you able to like sit down and like just write a simple song and organize all these like these multitudes of inputs into one single song and something so kind of singular like that? You, you don't overthink it. I think about how, you know, sometimes you hear people say, think deeply, express simply. That's always what I'm trying to figure out how to do. The harder part is how to go to sleep at night. Because <laughs> I think, you know, for me, I'll create a bunch of stuff very quickly. After thinking about a lot for a long period of time, it'll be a stretch of time. And then I'm like a binge creative. Like you binge watch a show on Netflix. I'll just binge a bunch of songs out of <laughs> moments of the symphony will come out. It's ideas and I archive them, and I don't think about them. And that allows for them to, in the subconscious, reveal to me what they are. So I try not to put pressure on it to be anything other than when, it's, when, I'm, when I'm hot and the hand is rolling, just capture it and write it down or record it or whatever. But going to sleep at night is rough, but you know, I, I, I married a great woman, so having a, a good home life is the other key. It's an it's a, uh, invaluable resource. Hi, my name is Harry. Um, and you already touched on this a little bit, but I just wanted to ask you that, so in jazz, a true core of the music is improvisation. When you're improvising, how much are you thinking about the math, the timing, the context of the song, and how much are you just feeling? It's up to you. Some people are thinking about all kinds of things. It's, um, it's very much a equation. You know, I, I think sometimes people look at that and say, oh, man, that's not, it's not intuitive enough. It's not from the heart. It's not, you know, if you're doing stuff like that. But then, you know, you look at Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, you know, <laughs> you look at people who have 
somehow developed an understanding of music. Like he wrote a piece of music, for instance, that was so symmetrical that the notation, you could flip the music upside down and read it backwards and it would be the same as if it was right side up, read forward. That is a form of mastery if that's how your brain and your spirit aligns to create great art. Other people don't know the notes that they're playing on the instrument that they're playing it on. It's, it, all that matters is the end result. Everything else was, was up to you. Hi, my name's Justin. Your time spending and living and teaching in New York, um, I myself coming from the New York area, having acted and dancing there my entire life, I really struggle to, like coming out to LA and everything like that, I really struggle to try and keep that New York identity when I come out here. And I really try and keep that passion and that energy and that drive. Would you say that you still, even though you're kind of far removed from that New York scene, would you still say that New York is still a big part of your music? Like, and what are some tips with keeping yourself true to where you came from and where you learned from and coming all the way out here? And you know what I mean? Like really trying to keep that, that youth and that power and that energy that comes from the East Coast and then coming out to the West Coast and really keeping that same drive, you know, yeah. that youthfulness. How I would you say that, that you put that into your music? What part and, of New York are you from? Uh, my family's from the Bronx. Yeah. So shout out the Bronx. But I live in Jersey, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. That's a great. The key is to just know what's important to you. Focus on what's important to you. Not what other people tell you they think should be important to you. It's as simple as that. Like focus on the thing that's important to you and then your authenticity of where you come from and all of that, you don't even have to think about it like that because you know when you're walking in that sort of alignment versus when you're not. You know when you're off versus when you're on. This stuff is simple. People overcomplicate it, but it's very simple. You just got to be disciplined. The hardest part is discipline. Because there's a lot of distractions. Life is full of distractions. Discipline is what allows for you to zone in on what's important to you and not to focus on what's not. John, good luck at the Grammys and the Oscars. Please send our best to your wife. And thank you again for coming here. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today. 
at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.